Chapter 10 of Marooned in the Forest, the story of a primitive fight for life by Alpheus Hyatt Verrill. The Slipperbox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10, Back to the Primitive. The sound of my own voice was a great relief. Suddenly my foolish terror vanished, and with a sudden reaction of feeling, I broke into peals of laughter as I realized that the blood-curdling cry was that of a lynx and not the wail of a banshee or anything supernatural. No doubt my screams frightened the creature quite as much as his cries had terrorized me, for there was no further sound from the roof, and the howling was not repeated. Feeling confident that the lynx had left the vicinity, I again snuggled down in my bunk and slept undisturbed until morning. But when I stepped out of my cabin the next day, the effect of the lynx's visit were evident. The deadfall was sprung and the bait had been taken. The snow was covered with the big footprints of the creature, and my store of frozen meat was torn to pieces and scattered upon the snow, while a good portion of it had been devoured or carried off by the great cat. That he would return for more food when darkness fell, I was convinced, and I determined to capture him if it was possible. As long as he was at large, I could not keep a store of frozen meat in safety, and I thought longingly of his thick fur, which would be a most welcome addition to my wardrobe. As I went into the woods to look at my traps and snares, I traced the lynx tracks for some distance until I reached a spot where he had leapt into a partly fallen tree and the trail was lost. Thinking this tree might be a regular runway for the creature, I spent some time setting a large and heavy deadfall upon it and then made the rounds of my traps. But I was doomed to disappointment for a thieving fisher cat had been before me and only fragments of torn skin and fur a few drops of blood and some scattered feathers remained as proofs that my snares had captured hares and partridges. As long as this thief was about, I could not expect to obtain game, for I well knew that once the rascal had discovered my traps, he would visit them as regularly as myself, and that it would be necessary to capture him to ensure my food supply. I had often heard Joe and the other woodsmen tell tales of the sagacity and cunning of the fisher cats, and I realized that I would have a hard time to capture the creature which robbed my traps. Nevertheless, I could but try, and with the greatest care I set up a deadfall near each of my traps and arranged the triggers as I had that of the beaver trap. Then, behind each trap, I built a little enclosure or fence of sticks, covered this with slabs of bark, and within these placed pieces of the frozen hairs left by the lynx. I then returned to the cabin, and in the afternoon set two large deadfalls and baited them with the remains of the hare's carcasses. During the day, I had given a great deal of thought to the capture of the lynx, and various plans had occurred to me which I cast aside as impracticable. Had I possessed any sort of serviceable weapons, it would not have been such a difficult matter to kill the beast, for I knew that, driven by hunger, a lynx will become very bold, and that by lying in wait I might easily obtain a good shot at him from within the cabin. I could not throw my spear from inside the hut, however, and I knew how hopeless it would be to attempt to approach the lynx in the open, while to fire at him with my flimsy bone-tipped arrows would be utterly useless. This led me to consider the possibility of making a more powerful bow and better arrows. I knew that the Indians used stone-headed weapons in former times, and I had often seen the stone arrowheads, and had even found many myself, and while I was familiar with their appearance, I had no idea how the savages formed them. But I was convinced that if a naked primitive Indian could make a stone arrowhead, a white man who had overcome as many difficulties as myself should be able to accomplish the same feat, and I decided to try my hand at making stone arrowheads at once. I had seen arrowheads of white quartz, of flint, and of various other stones, and I therefore came to the conclusion that the kind of rock made little difference, 
and as there were more pebbles and stones around the borders of the lake than anywhere else in the vicinity, I made my way to the shore and picked up a number of stones which I thought might serve my purpose. Again inside my hut, I proceeded to crack the pebbles with a large stone. While some of the rocks broke into small bits or thick squarish pieces, others split into flakes or slivers which were quite thin and bore a remote resemblance to the forms I desired. I reasoned that the Indians must have worked with stones for tools, and my common sense told me that the simplest and easiest method of transforming a rough flake of stone to an arrowhead would be to chip or break off the edges by nicking them with a rock. Selecting a promising flake of quartz, I attempted to work it into shape and chipped away steadily for half an hour or so. It was work to which I was not accustomed, and I scratched, bruised, and cut my hands, but the bit of stone gradually assumed a rough, spear-like shape. I was becoming elated at my success when, without warning, the quartz split in two. I was thoroughly disgusted. Tossing the two pieces petulantly into the fire, I tried another piece of stone. This was even more disappointing than the first, for with the third blow of my stone hammer, the rock flew to pieces, and this followed the others into the flames. Then it occurred to me that I might grind the stones on my grindstone, and I at once tried this scheme. Instead of cutting the rock, the grindstone was cut by the rock, and I realized that this method was impracticable. Then I thought that possibly some softer stone might be ground into shape, and I made another trip to the edge of the lake and returned with a number of pieces of a slate-like stone which seemed fairly soft. This gave way rapidly to the grindstone, and I soon succeeded in grinding out two arrowheads which pleased me greatly. These I bound onto my arrows in place of the boneheads, and then, in order to test them, I fired one at a piece of hide. The arrow flew much straighter and harder than those with the boneheads, but when it struck the skin, the slate splintered and the arrow fell to the earth without even penetrating the hide. I was now thoroughly convinced that my attempts at making stone arrowheads was a complete failure, and I seated myself before the fire to rest and think. As I sat there, gazing idly at the flames, I noticed the bits of quartz glowing red among the coals, and impelled by a vague curiosity, I raked them out upon the hearth. Thinking to cool the stones so I could examine them, I poured some water upon them and instantly the hot quartz flew into pieces. Surprised at this, I picked up one of the fragments and was struck by its knife-like edge and smooth surface, and like an inspiration it dawned upon me that here, perhaps, was a solution of my problem. If water poured upon hot quartz would cause the stone to sliver off in this way, why would it not be possible to heat stones drop water upon them in the proper places, and thus break off pieces until the desired shape was produced. It was certainly worth trying, and without more ado, I set to work to try the experiment. Placing a lump of quartz in the fire, I waited until it was red hot, and then, pulling it out, I poured a little water upon it. With a sharp crack, it burst into several pieces. Selecting the best of these, I again placed them on the coals. When they were all well heated, I drew one out and very carefully dropped water upon one edge. Pieces flaked from it wherever the water touched the hot stone. While my first attempt was a failure and the piece of quartz refused to assume the form of an arrowhead, yet I realized that this was due to my lack of skill and care and that my theory was correct. Over and over again, I heated stones and flaked them into shape by means of drops of cold water. And although I did not succeed in making a single arrowhead before darkness came, and I was obliged to cease, yet I felt convinced that with practice I could produce keen, well-shaped arrow points, and I went to bed determined to resume my labors on the morrow and to persevere until I was successful.
I heard no sound from the lynx or any other prowler that night and found the deadfalls undisturbed when I opened my door in the morning. As I approached the tree where I had placed the lynx trap, I saw it was sprung, but the lynx was not in it, although a few wisps of dark brown hair and numerous bloodstains proved that some creature had been struck by the heavy descending log. All about there were lynx tracks in the snow. Here and there I saw smaller tracks, and for a few moments I was puzzled, for the hairs upon the tree trunk did not look exactly like those of a lynx, and much of the blood was trodden into the snow by the creature's feet. Then, as I examined the trap more carefully, I discovered the tip of a bushy black tail and realized what had happened. The fisher cat had been caught in the deadfall and had been found and devoured by the lynx. I smiled as I thought how one thief had made away with another, but I regretted the loss of the fisher's warm skin. I reset the deadfall and then visited my other traps. Three hairs were hanging in the twitch-ups, and the fact that they had not been disturbed proved that my surmises in regard to the fisher's fate had been correct. One of the deadfalls contained a skunk, which I did not use, although its fine coat of black and white fur was a great temptation despite its odor. Another deadfall contained a marten, while the others had not been disturbed. The rest of the day I devoted to working at my arrowheads, and before noon I had the satisfaction of producing a very creditable arrowhead of quartz. I was anxious to test this, but I hesitated for fear of breaking it, and thus wasted all the time and labor I had spent. Finally, I decided to take the risk, and having bound it to one of the arrow shafts, I fired it at one of the hairs I had caught. With a thud, it struck the carcass, penetrated the skin, muscle, and bone, and came to rest with half its length projecting beyond the farther side of the hair. I hurried forward to examine the point, expecting to find it chipped or broken, but it was absolutely uninjured. I shouted with joy as I realized that my perseverance was rewarded, that I now possessed a weapon of real penetrating power, and that, provided my aim was true, I could successfully bring down many a creature that otherwise would have been beyond my reach. I argued if my crude, weak bow could drive this stone-headed shaft completely through a half-frozen hair, that with a stronger bow I might even kill a deer or the lynx, and I at once went to work on more arrowheads, wisely deciding that I had best complete this work while I was in practice, and leaving the making of a new bow until later. By nightfall, a half-dozen arrow points were finished, for once I had discovered the knack of making them, by touching the red-hot flakes of stone with a wet stick where I wished to chip off the edges, I found I could produce excellent results rapidly and easily. I had thought the tip which I tested on the hair was perfect, but by comparison with the last one I made, it seemed crude and rough, and I retired that night well pleased with my success and skill, and I fell asleep planning the bow which I promised myself I would make the following day. That night I was again aroused by the piercing scream of the lynx, and although I knew well what it was, yet I could not avoid shivering as the weird cadence rose and fell, echoing from the forest and ending in its unearthly moan, like a soul in mortal torment. I had always thought of lynxes with a feeling of contempt, and had looked upon them as cowardly overgrown cats, sneaking thieves and destroyers of small game, and I tried to laugh away my unreasonable fear. I told myself that I was perfectly safe here in the cabin and that even outside the creature would turn tail and bound off at sight of a human being. But despite every effort, when the cries again rang out from close at hand, I felt my knees shake while strange crawling sensations ran up and down the back of my neck. Listening intently, I could plainly hear the light creak of snow beneath the beast's feet as he moved about outside and finding inaction utterly unbearable. I slipped out of my bunk, tiptoed to the door, and peered out through a crevice. 
Outside it was as bright as day, with the full moon shining upon the snow, and there, within a dozen feet, was the lynx, a huge, tawny creature whose strength showed in every movement. He was nosing about near the deadfall, and his attitudes, as he peered at the trap, cocked his tufted ears forward and turned his head first to one side and then another, as if reasoning out a method of securing the coveted bait without injuring himself, made him appear unnaturally human. At sight of the creature, my unreasonable fears disappeared, for here was something tangible, and he was so close, so plainly visible, and presented such a splendid mark, that I determined to try a shot at him with my stone-tipped arrow. The crevice between the door and wall was very narrow, scarce an inch in width, and had I stopped to think, I would have known that to attempt to fire an arrow through this and strike the mark was utterly foolish. Placing the arrow on the bowstring, I slipped the head through the opening and started to draw the bow. As I did so, the arrow touched the side of the crevice and dislodged a tiny bit of old bark which dropped to the floor. Slight as the noise was, the keen ears of the lynx heard it, and with a startled growl, he faced toward me. Never shall I forget the fierce, malevolent gleam in those great green eyes, the snarling lips and gleaming teeth, and the bristling fringe of white beard. No longer did I see only a hulking lynx out there upon the snow. Instead, I seemed to gaze upon some supernatural, awful monster whose baleful eyes stared into mine and made me feel defenseless in spite of my shield of stout logs. His gaze filled me with a strange fear, an unnamed dread, and yet fascinated me as with hypnotic power. Motionless I stood there, as if transfixed, my bow half-drawn, my arrow poised, while for a brief space the lynx stared at the blank wall. Then, as he crouched low, as if about to spring, the spell was broken. My fingers released the string. There was a sharp twang, the rustle of the speeding arrow, and the next second the cabin shook as the vicious brute hurled himself against the door with a piercing scream of rage. For an instant, I feared the door would give way if the lynx sprang again, and terror-stricken at the fury I had aroused by my action in firing at him, I grasped my spear and knife, determined to sell my life dearly if the beast gained entrance. But there was no repetition of the attack, and at last, gathering up courage, I again looked forth from my peephole, but no sign of the lynx was to be seen. Still, I was afraid that he might return, and before climbing into my bunk, I piled the table, all the firewood, the iron pot, and the grindstone against the door. For a long time I lay awake, listening for some noise which would betray the return of the lynx, but no sound, save the distant bark of a fox and the querulous note of a screech owl, broke the silence of the winter forest, and finally I slept. When I again opened my eyes and, glancing about, saw the pile of things against the door, I laughed at my fears of the night and, jumping out of bed and wrapping myself in my robe, stepped out of doors to see what signs had been left by my midnight visitor. Evidently, the brute had vented his ill temper on my arrow, for the shaft was broken and bitten to pieces, but the head was uninjured, and as no blood spots were visible, I decided that the lynx had not been hit. The deadfall was still unsprung, and the bait within it was untouched. By the distance between his footprints, I knew that the first blind rage of the lynx had been superseded by terror, and that he had used all his speed in getting as far from the cabin as possible. Upon the door, deep white grooves were cut into the wood where the sharp claws of the lynx had struck, and I shuddered to think of the injuries those keen talons could inflict on human flesh. I was thankful indeed that stout wood was between me and the giant cat when he launched himself forward in a frenzy at being disturbed in his prowling. 
Judging by the fate of the Fisher Cat, I rather expected to find that any game which I had captured had gone to feed the hungry lynx, and in this surmise I was not at fault. Bits of white fur were all that remained of at least two hairs, while scattered feathers told the tale of a snared partridge which had also helped to satisfy the lynx's appetite. Matters now began to look serious. If the lynx was to rob my traps nightly, there was little use in setting them, and I would soon be face to face with the problem of killing the lynx or starving. He was evidently too wise to be caught in any trap which I could make, and my only hope lay in securing a supply of game by means of my bow and arrow, or of killing the lynx by the same method. Fortunately, I had quite a supply of frozen meat on hand, which I kept inside the cabin at night after freezing it during the day, and as I had no wish to become a purveyor to the lynx, I left my snares unset and returned to the hut to prepare to make a new bow. Now that I was comfortably clothed and housed and could not hope to get out of the woods for a long time, I could devote more skill and time to my bow-making. In the three months which had passed since I made my first bow, I had learned a great deal about the forest's resources, the properties of various woods, and the skillful use of my knife. Now I determined to make a weapon which would be worthwhile, and I spent several hours searching through the young growth at the edges of the woods and near the lake for a suitable staff from which to make my bow. Finally, I found what I sought— a thoroughly seasoned but sound pole of hornbeam, which was so tough, springy, and hard that I felt confident it would work into a bow of exceptional strength and power. As I returned with this, I noticed that the sky had grown overcast and that a few great flakes of snow were falling lazily through the cold, motionless air. A short time before, I would have been greatly troubled by the indications of a heavy snowfall, but now, with my foot completely recovered, well-clothed, and fully convinced that it was useless to think of making my way to the settlements before spring, a few inches or feet of snow, more or less, was of little moment. I found the hornbeam very hard to work, and by the time I was compelled to put it aside on account of darkness, I had accomplished little save to whittle the staff to half-round form. End of chapter 10